are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And if you remember, last week we began step number 23 on page 170 on pride. And uh, so we're working very well with the Evergetinos, uh, because if you remember on Monday, we have been reading the hypothesis on the distinctive marks of a humble person. And here we have John speaking to us about pride, the the opposite of it. And so we get a sharp look at uh, both the virtue and the vice. And uh, this is a very challenging, uh, but nonetheless very helpful step. We've already gone through the definition, uh, paragraph one, and so we're picking up with paragraph two, again on page 170. The consummation of vainglory is the beginning of pride. The middle is the humiliation of our neighbor, the shameless parade of our labors, self-praise in the heart, hatred of exposure. And the end is denial of God's help, the extolling of one's exertions, fiendish character. And so if you remember, John, at the very beginning of uh, vainglory wonders, the step on vainglory wonders why it is separated off because he saw vainglory and pride so uh, intimately linked together and one uh, leading to the other, uh, more though in the sense of an acorn growing into a full, full grown tree, oak tree. And, uh, and here he begins to lay out for us this sort of transition into the, the fullness of pride from vainglory. And so as we reach vainglory at its height and where it begins to transition into pride is the humiliation of neighbor that in order to feel good about ourselves or to exalt uh, our sense of self-esteem that we become willing to humiliate our number neighbor to make them feel uh, uh, that they are less than us, less intelligent, whatever it might be. Uh, to diminish their self-esteem in whatever way we can in order to elevate our own ego. A shameless parade of our labors. So uh, sort of communicating uh, to the world around us the, the different things that we are doing and the value of them uh, so as to exalt ourselves 
And so it's not even receiving the praise of others, but it's seeking that praise by actively uh, sort of advertising ourselves, if you will. Self-praise in the heart. Uh, and so th in our heart, rather than being turned to God, and rather than uh, having our heart being filled with self-reproach, as the author, as the writers in the Evergatinos told us on, on Monday, uh, our hearts become filled with self-praise. The shift is to the, the good things that we see about ourselves or the good things that we are doing. Even in the name of religion, uh, we are exalting ourselves uh, rather than acknowledging our poverty and in the process uh, expressing our gratitude to God for his, his mercy. Hatred of exposure. And so avoiding having our foibles, our weaknesses revealed in the eyes of others. So never wanting to be seen by others as having any kind of weakness. So we can be driven uh, to excel uh, on a certain level uh, simply because we uh, don't want to be seen in a negative light by others. We want to be seen in a positive light. And so we might not be doing something for the glory of God or for the salvation of souls, uh, but rather, again, to uh, create an image of ourselves. And uh, this particular da danger, uh, especially with something like what we are doing now, you know, that we have access to uh engage access to people all over the world to engage each other in a way never before and uh while it, there can be great good uh that comes from it there can be an urge to celebrate the self or to advertise the self and uh, uh and there can be a danger in that it's one thing to put forward uh programs or educational programs, uh, but one's own ego can become caught up in that uh, very quickly. How many downloads you're getting uh, or how many likes on a particular post, uh, how many followers one has or subscribers. And to, to begin to be, go back to that and examine that over and over again and to seek ways to uh, encourage growth uh, and by uh, making it more, uh, more and more professional, if you will, going beyond what is needed. And I, I get uh, emails, you know, uh, what is it called? The LinkedIn. Are you familiar with that? It's sort of like uh, where people connect because of their work or where they studied. And I get constant emails from people, you know, promising to be able to multiply you know followers downloads subscribers by a hundred percent and things such as that and uh, those who could sell you in a, a better way and uh, and so there is great care that we aren't holding religion or religiosity out there as a commodity uh, and to want to package it in such a way to make it appealing uh, because it can alter what it is that we are doing and how we are presenting it. We can become hucksters of the faith and uh, trying to present it in such a way that it becomes most palatable or entertaining 
And again, you know, we can be become overcautious in what we are presenting. Um, and so for a lot of different reasons, uh, we have to avoid this kind of pride that uh, wants the exposure to be positive and to be able to elevate uh, oneself, uh, not just that others might be exposed to what is good, but that they might be exposed to you and like you. Um, at the end, he says, uh, we come to the very denial of God's help. So pride leads us to this place where we have a kind of self-confidence that sees ourselves as not having a need uh, for prayer or for the aid of others, for spiritual direction, uh, that uh, we don't need others' counsel uh, or, or judgment about things. Uh, and when pride takes hold of it, we don't want anybody getting in our way slowing things down for us, preventing us from doing the things that we would want to do in the way that we would want to do them. And, you know, this can work in a very subtle way. I think uh, when we are frustrated by others that are preventing us from doing what we believe is a good work, and, uh, and if you work for the church long enough, <laughs> you're going to have those kind of feelings. Things can move awfully slow and uh, and not necessarily go in the direction that one would have it in one's own view uh, of things. And, uh, and so there can be a frustration there that is rooted in those realities, but also rooted in pride that it, one has to humble oneself and not being able to move at the speed with which one would want to move or to have one's creativity uh, or experience acknowledged or, or seen or responded to. And, um, and so behind this uh, can be something such as the denial of God's help you know, where we aren't resting in him and allowing him to guide us in his providence, both in terms of timing and what it is that he wants us to do. And that might not fit with our image of things and what we would hope to obtain or be able to do in the course of our life with the time that is given to us. And we can feel this kind of internal pressure that wants to put ourselves forward uh, rather than waiting for God. The extolling of one's own exertions. So this sort of follows with what I was saying here, that we want our work to be, hard work to be recognized and, uh, and want it to be acknowledged for what it is. And when it's not, or not seen at all, acknowledged at all, pride can get the better of us. And then finally, a fiendish character. You know, we can become uh, like he who fell through pride. We can become like the evil one himself, that we can be wrapped up in uh, ourself to the exclusion of God. And uh, again, this can happen in very subtle ways. You know, I think our vision of, of this is tied to the creativity of the movies. Uh, but the way 
pride can take hold of us and even reshape our character to lead us to do things that we would not imagine ourselves doing or saying uh, is often far more subtle uh, and uh, not as exaggerated as Hollywood would make it, that we can give, make ourselves sons and daughters of the evil one uh, simply by mimicking in our behavior uh, the, the attitude of the evil one, uh, wanting to place ourselves solely at the center uh, of things, to shape our uh, destiny, as it were. And, uh, and when we are presented with something that requires, you know, we follow a humbled, crucified Lord, and uh, sometimes even the smallest things that lead us down that path, we will resist. And, uh, and this, we can take on a kind of fiendish character here. And rather than seeing things coming to us from God, we can switch around and see it as evil or the opposite way around. You know, that which is good, which does come from the hand of God, we attribute uh, to the evil one. And when this happens, sometimes then we can uh, turn others into the, the ogres, the monsters, you know, uh, when they aren't doing our will uh, and becoming an obstacle to us. Anything about this particular paragraph that stands out? Number three. Let all of us who wish to avoid this pit listen. This passion often finds food in gratitude. For at first, it does not shamelessly advise us to deny God. I've seen people who thank God with their mouth, but mentally magnify themselves. And this is confirmed by that Pharisee who said, ironically, Oh God, I thank thee. And so we can use the language of gratitude uh, and become very proficient at it. And so like the Pharisee uh, and the publican in the temple, the Pharisee you know, begins his prayer by thanking God but then sinks to the depth of pride. Thank you for not making me like this publican, you know, that I'm able to fast and give alms and do all these different things. Uh, and so his thanksgiving is nullified by the, the depth of his pride. And so we have to be careful and, you know, I think particularly as religious men and women, because we are given this language that can cover, uh, as it were, a multitude of sins. You know, religious delusion, I, I honestly think, is the deepest and most profound. You know, the evil one can distort reality for us. And if it gets wrapped up in this religious identity, uh, we, where we are convinced that something is from God or that we are, what we are doing is from God, uh, then we can sink into a profound delusion. And, uh, and so things that can begin with thanksgiving or, you know, our thanking God uh, can hide this more subtle reality where 
you know, that again, we are focused upon ourselves or we think ourselves to be good or to have earned God's praise. And so the thing that is lacking in that Pharisee is that self-reproach, again, that we heard about in the Evergetinos, this acknowledgement of one's sin, and that all things begin and end with God, with his grace. And, uh, and, and so it's not that that goodness of God lets off at some point, and that we don't all owe all things to him. Number four, where a fall has overtaken us, their pride has already pitched its tent because a fall is an indication of pride. This is a hard thing to acknowledge uh, because so often we will fall into a particular sin and experience this frustration uh, but we will, we want to externalize the cause of it, that uh, he made me angry. Uh, we will project the source of that anger onto somebody else. And we do this with many different things. The, the devil made me do it uh, kind of thing, and uh, which is true. Uh, he often does in the terms of putting the temptation before us, but uh, we still will take hold of that. And, uh, and so pride is, Climacus is telling us, is at the root of our sins, that we trusted in our own strength at some point, where we took our focus off of God, or or we lost this sense of humility before him and or you know struck out and judged another even if it's in our own thought and this is what leads us in to the this the sin you know the judging of others the humiliation of them or again the, the things that he mentioned in the previous paragraph self-praise hatred of exposure that there's all, always pride that precedes these falls. Uh, we hear the same thing in the, the book of Proverbs. Uh, pride rideth before the fall. Uh, you know, when one becomes too comfortable on top of the horse and loses their watchfulness, their attentiveness, is when they, even the most experienced rider will have a serious fall. Uh, because they aren't attentive to their surroundings or uh, and they're sort of caught up in a moment. And the next thing you know, they're on the ground. And so it is for all of us that we lo can lose vigilance, become again focused upon either upon ourselves or what we are doing to an extent that uh, that God is excluded from it. He's out of mind. We've forgotten him. And, uh, and that's where we experience a fall. Now, the evil one will always have a multitude of ways to, to trip us up. And so if we aren't seeking to pray without ceasing, as Paul exhorts us, and to be mindful of God, to remember him at every moment, and uh, to be watching the thoughts that come to us as being the source of often 
these uh, of this pride and of the falls, then uh, we're soon to experience it, experience it. Number five, a venerable man said to me, suppose that there are 12 shameful passions. If we deliberately love one of them, I mean pride, it will fill the place of the remaining 11. So again, this works very well with what we've been reading in the Evercatinos, that there we are told by the fathers that uh, if a person is lacking in virtue, uh, but possesses humility, then within that humility, all the other virtues are, are to be found. Uh, uh, but uh, if he has all the other virtues and yet has pride, all of those have no meaning to them. Uh, that all the, and this is what John is basically saying here, that within pride, all the other passions are present and we become vulnerable to them all. Uh, that all the passions uh, are linked together like cars in a train. And so to give oneself over to one is to make oneself vulnerable to the others. And if pride is the greatest, if it's the strongest, uh, it will uh, draw all the others in to our life in one form or another. And similarly, to take hold of humility uh, allows God to lift us up, to provide us with supernatural grace that uh, he fills the mind and the heart and can bring about a healing even of the worst of sins within us. That's why repentance is uh, put forward over and over again. If you remember in the Tinos, the first, I don't know, must have been 10 hypotheses that we read had to deal, do with repentance in one form or another, uh, about how radically that changes our relationship with God, that in an instant, it draws the mind and the heart back to him and opens up uh, a, a window, if you will, to uh, uh, a flooding of his grace. So even before any change of life has taken about, a flood of God's grace and mercy enters into the human heart. When there's humility there, then that leads to repentance. Well, John is saying in a similar way, if we open ourselves to pride, we open ourselves then to a flood of a, an attack of all the other passions. Any thoughts so far? Okay. Number six, a haughty monk contradicts violently, but a humble one cannot even look another in the face. So the individual who's filled with reproach, who acknowledges his own capacity for sin, who directs that insensitive faculty towards his own thoughts, towards his own uh, sinful uh, passions or appetites or uh, disordered appetites, um, you know, he's not going to be able to look the other in the eye. His, his, his attention is not going to be on what the other person is doing. His focus is going to be on himself and his own need for repentance. Whereas the haughty monk, he says, contradicts violently. So as soon as he hears something 
in which he's in disagreement, he will react with a fierceness. And you remember we talked about the insensitive faculty, that it acts with, with this kind of fierce swiftness. We become incensed at the approach of temptation uh, or of the evil one, and we act very quickly to strike out or down a, a sinful thought. But if it is directed toward the other in this fierce way, then it's driven by pride. And we begin to look for chinks in the armor, if you will, of the other, weak spots that they might have, and in order that we can rise up and humiliate them. Victor. Uh, yes, Father, I'll just uh, mm -hmm. give an observation. At the beginning, you were commenting on the importance of spiritual direction, and I noticed that someone here today with us is um, a father from, I, if I read it correctly, North Dakota, and I'm in West Virginia. There's a, it, it can be pretty hard to get um, a, a trained spiritual director. You know, like, for instance, I... I talked to a priest who actually had a degree in psychology. He's a pastor, and he said, I asked him if he'd be my spiritual director, and he declined, saying he's not trained as a spiritual director. And there's wisdom in that, but, um, you know, uh, what does it mean to be trained, you know, in discernment and so forth? Uh, but then going forward to my Part of my comment, I'm remembering a time when I was in a religious community and they had a, um, and this is getting to the issue of pride or whatever kind of um, um, habitual problem uh, an individual might have. We had something called exorcism caritatis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, Father David, no, but um, no. you basically get everybody paired up uh, and uh, in that particular community, the um, the superior told you who your partner was for the this one, and we would do this periodically. But you'd walk off into a you know, it's like a retreat setting, a beautiful grove of trees with paths, and you take fifteen minutes per person to give feedback on what you think you're supposed to reflect on it. It just doesn't, you know, they might tell you who your partner is like a few hours ahead of time and you prayerfully consider what you're going to say. And, and you offer your observations. It's kind of like you might've had when you did your uh, certification as a psychologist where they, or in a CPE program, something like that, where you, yeah, you, you, you get feedback and it's not always happy. <laughs> when you get the feedback uh but anyway i'm just putting that idea out for those of us who are maybe not in a place where we can readily find a spiritual director but it's probably good to maybe uh try to get uh a spiritual person a priest or a nun who you can share your reaction to that experience you know but maybe and people who are married, they usually, or uh, uh, living in a family, probably get that naturally. But it's not always met with 
openness, you know, it sometimes comes out in an angry <laughs> moment with action and reaction. Right. <laughs> anyway, that's my comment, and sure. maybe you have some thoughts on it. Yeah, or, so the focus is on receiving the critique of the other. Yes. That's sort of an uh, unusual approach to it. Uh, there, I've often heard of something described as the chapter of faults within a community where uh, individuals in the community would accuse themselves of ways that they've fallen short of fulfilling the rule or living in charity in the community. And then they would be either given a penance uh, by the superior or uh, a group penance would be embraced that uh, there would always be a kind of danger I think in going the other direction and having others point out each other's flaws and sins or weaknesses because it could give rise to you know lack of charity or hurt feelings whereas uh, right. a chapter of faults where you're acknowledging your own uh it's a different matter um i think in terms of spiritual direction it is very hard as you said to find someone and i think that's it's sort of symptomatic of where we are not only in terms of maybe lack of vocations but i think even in terms of how we enter into formation ourselves that certainly those who are priests who are going to be responsible for the care of souls should be in spiritual direction from, from the first moment that they are discerning and then certainly all the way through priesthood and then through their, or through their training and then all the way through their priesthood as well. Uh, that if this is what you are ordained to do, to care for others and to guide them in the spiritual life, then the emphasis up on your life should be seeking to form the mind and the heart in light of what we are reading in the fathers and to have someone guide us uh, in and through that and uh, similarly with prayer I was reading today that you know there was a priest who spent so much time in the chapel you know and praying early in the morning that he was given the nickname Father Vigil and somebody asking him, asked him, you know, why he spent so much time. And he said, well, you know, what do you do? And the person said this. And he said, well, you work at this, you know, eight hours a day. He said, but I'm, I'm a priest. My responsible is for, you know, what takes place at, at the altar and everything that flows from the altar as well. And so what else should he be doing other than being deeply immersed in prayer the study of the fathers, the care of souls, you know, in a multitude of ways. And I think what we've fallen into is a kind of administrative corporate view of the church that often prevents priests from doing that. And uh, as you said, the priest was honest in saying, well, I haven't been trained to do that. The question is, why not? And because he was able to undergo the psychological training. And so why is more emphasis being placed upon that than on the spiritual formation? And, uh, you know, I, I've said it a lot of times within the groups, and I hate to repeat myself, but I do all the time, uh, about s seminary training. 
that we move to an academic model. And now there's, you know, this program for priestly formation that closely mimics that and, you know, and emphasizes formation on all these different levels, which is fine. But it's interesting when you see how an individual is evaluated uh, who's in formation, priestly formation, uh, the, the ones who can say nothing in his, when they come to evaluating the individual are the ones who serve as spiritual director because everything that they do is internal form with that individual. So it's confidential. And so those who know that individual, the state of their soul and their love of God or the things that they struggle with uh, can say nothing. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I think what is emphasized is not what we find emphasized again in the fathers, which is the immediate goal is seeking purity of heart and the true theology it comes from experiential knowledge of God, from entering into that relationship. And uh, out of that purity of heart is born the capacity for discernment, you know, to see and understand the things of the kingdom and the teachings of the gospel with a depth. And so the first thing I would do would it would be to dismantle the seminary system. Uh, because I, I think there's something inherently built into it that uh, alters the formation. I mean, prior to Trent, and not that it was it was good. I think one of the reasons the seminary system arose was uh, a kind of deficiency. But often it was more through uh, like an apprenticeship, you know, spending time with a, a, a holy priest who would form you both uh, in the spiritual life, but also in your understanding of the faith. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I think we've lost our way in that regard. Uh, because we, what we have at our fingertips now is, you know, we have the sacramental life. We have the, the doctors of the church, East and West. We have the writings of the fathers all available to us, uh, we have confession, and the the depth of that formation can be great. You know, the retreat I'm doing out at this monastery, I'm doing a little section of Saint Isaac the Syrian, and it's been said of him that if you were to lose all of the writings of the fathers and you only had the writings of Isaac the Syrian, you could begin as a novice in the spiritual life and make your movement all the way. Uh, to the greatest sanctity, that his teaching is such, uh, so rich that reading him alone is sufficient. And in fact, St. Paisius in the East for 20 years read only St. Isaac the Syrian, a paragraph a day. And again, that tells me something pretty important, you know, that, that there is a kind of nourishment there that is unparalleled. And he found no need to immerse himself. I think we've thrown ourselves into this, you know, filling the mind with a flood of information. And yet some of that information is going to be like junk food. And, you know, the, the, some of the books in seminary was, are, were PAP. And, and uh, the books and the courses as well were, you know, to fill up the number of credits needed. 
But were they formative? I would not say so. You know, we, we would do better, I think, to send our seminarians to Egypt and to have them live in a monastery <laughs> or create our own, you know, the, the lives should be more monastic uh, in their formation. And one of the beauties in the East is that they would draw their, their, their bishops from the monasteries, like the cops, uh, Pope Shenouda, this is the incredibly holy figure, was a monk in the in Wadi Natrun and uh, so formed in this spirituality that is rooted in the gospel and that is the spirituality of the church so the forms the mind and the heart that we might give ourselves over to God fully and so you know getting back to your question about you know avoiding this pride in spiritual direction is that we do have it at our fingertips and but nobody's going to spoon feed us this that we have to be willing to enter into it fully both in terms of our exercise of it embrace of it in our day-to-day -day life but our study of it if this is at the heart of our life i mentioned a couple of weeks ago this little video on youtube uh about father lazarus uh called the last anchorite and he says you know if we we pray get up in the morning we say our prayers and you know, we uh, do a little examination of conscience. So we say our night prayers and uh, say a prayer here and there and go to divine liturgy on occasion and confession once in a while. He says, you know, then we are doing this. We're engaging in all these activities as an auxiliary construction. That it's a psychological construct that these become part of the activities of our day, but are they really rooted in this desire for God that we hear articulated in the fathers, a desire where God is everything for us. And he says, if what we are doing is this auxiliary construction, a psychological construct, then all that we are doing is uh, uh, contrary and, uh, and to our relationship with God and outside of it. So it can have the appearance of prayerfulness. Uh, and I think it's a good thing to keep in mind, you know, where is our mind and heart at from moment to moment? Who are we seeking? Father, and may I make a quick comment on what you've said? Mm -hmm. I think two words really well, apart from Isaac the Syrian, but you said the internal forum, and uh, I believe that's a hundred percent what you said. That's a part of the problem, but it's rooted with a good construct. I think it's possibly taking a seal of confession and then applying it to a spiritual direction. But um, you know, over the course of a seminarian's studies, um, he because it's usually a, a male. Uh, uh, will be uh, dealing with multiple spiritual directors. So you get to the point where, you know, there are very few spiritual directors that can comment on a person's suitability for the priesthood. And then that approach uh, to the seal of confession and internal forum is extrapolated to 
the whole life of the church, which led us, in my view, to all these bishops hiding the abuse of children, the abuse of, you know, the sexual problems uh, existing in the church and the priesthood. Uh, it might have been a good intention, but um, so then you get the external world through the legal system is pounding in on the church now because all the bishops and so forth until recent years have you know, kept it. It's internal form. We're hoping for the reform of this person. And look what it got us. I'm sorry. It's sad. Yeah, it is. And I understand what you're saying. And uh, we should probably move on. But, you know, I think sometimes the digressions are important that, you know, I think we are forced to rely upon worldly knowledge rather than divine when we are not fully immersed in the relationship with Christ. That what we are being drawn into is beyond human reason. It's not as though human reason doesn't come into play in our life or it's unimportant, but faith is this knowing that draws us into the experience of God himself. And when we neglect that, what we are going to turn to for formation or the things of this world. And uh, and I think that's where we are drawn off the mark because you know I think more and more emphasis is placed on the psychological, which I understand as a priest, from my early years of priesthood, I found myself walking in the dark with so many individuals because there were so there was so much trauma that was present that you don't know what spiritual counsel to offer. But, uh, but the problem is not that. The, the, the problem, again, is are we real, really rooted in the, the life of the divine? Are we rooted in the relationship with God? And, uh, you know, we see a lot of these great saints having very little education and yet having this perception of the human condition or the spiritual state of souls that is made known to them through their purity of heart and through the gift of faith. And, uh, and so on some level, I think we've lost our faith. Our faith is weakened in the power of the sacraments and, and the grace that comes to us through prayer. And we've shifted it on to, again, what we can control, what we can construct in one way or another to make the church effective or heard within the world. And that story from the Evercatinos of the monk casting out the demon by turning the other cheek. You know, he does violence to the evil one. He cast out the demon because he embodies, he incarnates Christ. He incarnates the truth of, of the gospel, the commandments. Oh, the violence of obedience to the commands of God. And the demon is cast out. Well, you know, I think for many modern Christians, there perhaps isn't this kind of depth of faith, you know, that it seems too simple or, you know, we, or that it's going to be too unattractive to the world or, or won't speak to the world. 
but you know whether it's John Climacus or Isaac the Syrian, you know, they speak to the heart like no other. Okay, let's see here. Uh, David Spodersky writes, John mentions gluttony is the prince of passions, but also places pride as a key passion. Are they both keys of all the passions? Is the one more principal? Well, I think gluttony is placed the beginning in terms of what we struggle with uh, in, in regards to appetite and is tied to bodily appetite. And so we work from that, that which is rooted in the physical and the bo bodily appetites and desires to the more spiritual. Uh, but behind them all is the, the great sin of pride that emerges, that brings about the fall altogether. And so within gluttony too, I mean, we are placing uh, again our hope in something to fill us sustain us uh comfort us other than god and again we're placing weight on our own judgment there rather than what this comes to us from christ or the saints that it is christ alone who's the bread of life and the one who can satisfy the deepest yearnings of the heart Number seven, the cypress does not bend to walk on earth, nor does a lofty-hearted monk bend to acquire a bent obedience. So, you know, a lofty-hearted monk, one who is filled with pride, is not going to value obedience as that which not, not only forms and shapes the heart, but configures us to Christ and makes us confessors of the faith. That Christ, you know, is obedient and then even unto death. You know, he, he takes upon himself uh, our flesh and has one desire, my, is to fulfill the Father's will. My food is to do the Father's will. And... Uh, but for the, the lofty-minded person, they're going to lose sight of that. You know, obedience is seen as something that is diminishing rather than something that uh, allows us to hear with a greater sensitivity uh, the will and the word of, of God. And, uh, and so, you know, whatever abilities a person might have, in this world, they're all for naught if we lose sight uh, again of really what is at the heart of our our faith life, the means through which we have been saved, and uh, if we lose sight of the cross and seek to construct a path for ourselves that diff is differs than that of of Christ's path. He is the way, and so in every way, our life is should be conformed to his own an arrogant man yearns for authority for otherwise as it were he cannot or rather does not wish to perish utterly so you know the the one who is humble 
is not going to want authority at all or desire it. You know, what he's going to desire is to, to be obedient and for the self, the ego, to, to disappear. The one who yearns for authority is, is one who yearns to have his ego satisfied or to be at the center of all things, that he makes the decisions that affect not only himself, but everyone around him. And so the last person, you know, that you would want to have as a bishop is one who desires it. Uh, you know, it's the, the person that you would want there is should be the one who's most obedient and has been the most obedient servant uh, of God. And the same thing within religious communities. The ones who become superior should be the ones that were the models of, of obedience, who live the, the life out fully, sometimes in a hidden way, quiet way, but nonetheless understand what it is to be a religious. God resisteth the proud. Who then can have mercy on them? Every proud-hearted man is unclean before God. Who then can cleanse such a person? So John is going to unpack this for us a bit in the coming sayings. Uh, but if a person has turned away from God, if they become so formed and shaped by pride that they are unable to repent or unable to receive the counsel of others, unwilling, then how can they be, how can they be saved? if they've turned so in on themselves that they no longer see God. And, uh, and as I said, this is what John is going to unpack for us. Uh, here at number 10, he says, chastisement for the proud is a fall, a thorn is a devil, and abandonment by God is madness. In the first two cases, people have often been healed by men. But the last is humanly incurable. So to be, uh, you know, a, a, a person who has, has fallen into pride can be chastised, rebuked by another, or chastised by the fall itself and made humble. Uh, or a person who has a, a thorn, you know, this deeply rooted habitual sin uh, where he is oppressed by the evil one, uh, driven by the sin in his life. Likewise, there's hope of healing through the hand of another, or even through being humbled through a fall. But the last is, is humanly incurable, uh, he tells us. We're uh, abandoned by God into a kind of madness, that the person who makes himself God uh, then begins to shape reality as he sees it. And so loses touch with reality, what it is to be a human being, what it is to be in a relationship with others, what it is to live in this world. He's fallen into a kind of madness and uh, his reality becomes so distorted that another could not even enter into it in such a way as to offer counsel 
or guidance to them, that it is would only be God who could enter into that in such a way uh, as to as to bring healing. And sometimes it's a, to allow them to enter into and experience the fullness of that madness and its poverty uh, and what it brings to their life in order with a, with a hope that they would emerge from it. And, uh, you know, even, you know, psychologically, this can be very difficult, too, that when a distorted view of reality is shaped by trauma, at a certain point in a person's life, very early, perhaps even pre-verbal, that therapeutic work has modest, if any, uh, uh, gains for an individual or offers modest help. That how do you enter into a distorted view of reality if some they're symbolically the way that they view the world around them and engage it is so distant from the norm, then how does one treat such an individual? Uh, it becomes very difficult, uh, to say the least. And uh, in fact, those who work with those who have experienced great trauma, or even you know those who are like borderline individuals, can only work with a certain number because it's such a strain emotionally for them to work with such individuals. And often they have to go back into psychoanalysis themselves as the therapist to deal with what's going on in the counter-transference with what they're experiencing in relationship to the person that they're working with uh, in order to be able to see their way through that work. And so spiritually, when we think about it is that you know, when a person has entered into that darkness of the evil one and has lost touch with he who is meaning, he who is reality, he who is truth, then what is it that's going to uh, light, you know, bring light to that darkness? You know, no human being is going to be able to do that through their counsel that it's really only going to be the grace of God that could overcome such a thing. Any thoughts? Oh, Louise, I'm sorry. Uh, therefore, how to understand one's desire to become competent, as competent as can be, to do things right? Well, I think by keeping the focus on desire, and desire for God. I think the thing that's been so striking to me over the course of these decades is finding the language of desire so permeating the writings of the fathers, their desire and their longing for God, that their asceticism, again, isn't this raw endurance. It's not rooted in shame or the desire to punish but it is rooted in this desire to let go of everything but God, to love him above all things. And, uh, and so they have this incredible desire that pulls them forward, this incredible sense that that lack that we feel internally 
can only be filled by the one in whose image and likeness we have been made. And when we, you know, the moment that we are driven by anything other than that desire and become driven even for a kind of proficiency in like spiritual direction that we would go to school for it. Uh, I was reading something recently where uh, it was in the the epilogue to uh, St. Isaac the Syrian's ascetical homilies. And uh, it talks about uh, a British monk receiving a guest, uh, abbot. A monk comes to the monastery and wants to speak with the abbot. And uh, and so the abbot agrees to speak with him and to speak with him the next day. And he wants to talk to him about his spiritual life and his studies at the universities. But he came to, to England to be able to study, I forget which of the fathers it was, but he came from Mount Athos to study at the universities about one of the, these great fathers. And the abbot thinks to his, the, himself, you know, there's a profound disconnect here. You've left the holy mountain where you're living with those who uh, have been profoundly shaped by the grace of God and by the, the, the very truths that these saints wrote about what are you doing you know the thought was would be to say what are you doing here why are you coming to university when you're living at the very heart of where this spirituality uh is being sought and lived and uh and so you know to get back to your question uh, how do what how does one understand the desire to be competent? Uh, you know, we should understand it is not existing outside of the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of Christ and outside of that desire for him. And the I think when we turn something like spiritual direction into instead of the art of arts and the science of science or the science of the fathers, into a degree that is earned and a diploma that is put on the wall that tells everybody coming in, well, I've been trained in order to be able to guide people in the spiritual life. Well, there's a huge difference between what is notional and real. And, and so, so such a great difference, in fact, again, that the fathers say that, you know, outside of this purity of heart and living the ascetic life, that theology becomes demonic theology. That the true theology is this experiential knowledge of him. And so, uh, not again, you know, I'm not taking this, you know, anti-intellectual approach to things, nor do I think study is a bad thing, uh, but study to the, the point of neglect of the ascetic life and one's relationship with God, uh, or of diminishing that from the place that it should have in our life is problematic. I forget which Western saint it was, maybe it was Francis Xavier having this desire to run through the universities of 
of Paris screaming at people like a madman because you know he you know he was so busy catechizing people and baptizing them that he barely had the opportunity to say the office that there was so much of a need there for evangelization and you know here you have all these people you know studying for these degrees uh and uh again you know not that the degrees are bad but you know given the fact that we live to the 80s if we're lucky you know that degree is not going to do much for us when we stand before god it's you know we're going to be asked you know did you love you know give a glass of cold water to one in need you know all, all the things that we have to be prepared for you know that's what's going and everything that we did not do is going to be shouted from the housetops so actually that brings us to 8 30 and uh again this is not one that i would want to rush through in any case but uh, a lot there to contemplate and a lot there more to pray about, to be honest, you know, in terms of our own life, that we uh, we would begin to understand this in light of Christ. And that, you know, the, the defenses that we have in place that cling to self-esteem would drop and that we would take hold of the Lord. You know, trust in what he provides. But pray for our seminarians as well, you know. We live in a difficult time in that regard. So, folks, uh, again, just a little reminder. Uh, next week, no groups. Uh, I'll be away uh, Monday through Friday. And uh, ask you to keep me in your prayers. And then we'll pick up the, the following week. All right. So, why don't we close as always. With our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to go bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.